You don't want to be you don't want to be too heavy when everybody's at the at hour twenty four of fasting anyway. <laughs> okay, so I think we're live. It's uh, uh, eight p.m. So welcome everyone to Drisha's Alul's Mom classes, and this is the third and final class in this session on forgiveness in Judaism and philosophy. We encourage everyone to turn on uh, your video if you are able to. Uh, feel free to ask questions or comment by writing in the chat box here on Zoom or as a comment on Facebook if you're watching us live. This class explores forgiveness, what it is and why we should forgive. Over the course of three sessions, we'll consider three different uh, conceptions of forgiveness and its place in a life. First, we look at forgiveness as a kind of uh, quasi-legal mechanism. That's what we did in the previous classes, a way of wiping um, clean a uh, cosmic slate marred by wrongdoing. In the second class, we looked at forgiveness as a, uh, essentially emotional phenomenon. To forgive is to give up uh, the anger or resentment that one feels towards a wrongdoer. Okay, well, in the second class we talked about um, forgiveness as a concept of like, um, maybe like forgiving an like an emotional uh, experience you had because of someone. So like if Quinn did something terrible to me, I deserve to be angry at him, but it, when I forgive him, I like relinquish those emotions. Um, and maybe with that, we'll move on over to um, Quinn's introduction of our topic today. Great. Um, so, and I, I just want to make sure my, it, okay, I just want to make sure it wasn't just on my answer. Am I coming through okay for, for okay, great. Yeah. So, we've had these two, these two views, and I think, um, you know, not least because of things that if I'm remembering Mona brought up on our very first day together, you might just have a, a lingering thought that something is still missing from this picture. So one way into this idea is if we just ask, why are we in the business of forgiving? Well, here's one important answer, an answer that seems to fit quite well with the view we talked about last time where forgiveness is about letting go of an emotion like anger. Maybe we forgive in part to heal ourselves. You know, anger is this really difficult, painful thing, and we need to let it go sometimes. Maybe to harken back to the first session we had together, we forgive in part because, you know, the, the wrongdoer has paid their debt in, in some sense. But it still seems like there's a piece of the, of, of the picture, a sort of part of the point of forgiving that hasn't, hasn't been captured if we just focus on these two, on these two pieces. And that's the idea that in some way or another, forgiveness is about addressing a kind of rupture or damage in a relationship. Um, and if we think that that's a sort of, that, that's part, that's part of what seems not just accidentally connected to forgiveness, but an essential piece of it, that when we forgive, we're trying to put something back together or heal, not just ourselves, not just like a recognition of a debt, but heal the space between us, then we're going to need to develop or think about a view that, that is able to, to get that piece of it, um, into the story. And so Leah, I'll pass it over to, to you for, for our first passage discussion. Okay, um, Evie, since you're back now, hey, can, would you mind putting the source sheet into the chat? Yes. <laughs> no. um, and welcome back to Evie. 
Um, so folks, we're, we're, we generally prefer to like see all your beautiful faces and not screen share. So just when Evie puts the source sheet into the chat, just open it up and organize your computer screen as you will, or it was also sent out in advance to people um, who registered. So um, maybe you printed it out in advance even if you're fancy. Um, but we're if you if you don't want to do either of those things and you want to actually you know take out your Tanakh. Um, we are in, um, we're in Genesis 50 right now, and we are at this amazing moment where, you know, one of the like greatest wrongs people do against each other in the longest single story in all of the Torah is Joseph's brothers, um, selling Joseph as a slave, Joseph goes off to Egypt, and, this, and then Jacob obviously is lied to, and it's this whole tremendous drama. But at the very end of that story, after Jacob dies, that's where we are. We're Genesis 50. Jacob has died. Jacob has been buried. Everyone has returned to Egypt. And now without Jacob in the picture, somehow Jacob was maybe this like peacekeeper amongst his sons, or they knew that Joseph's love for Jacob and Jacob's love for all of the sons would like protect the other brothers. But now Jacob is dead. So we have by your uh, we have J um, Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. What if Joseph is still angry at us? What if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong we did to him? Right? So that's kind of our, uh, that was our, maybe our first understanding of forgiveness is that like, you know, like you're owed something, and like maybe, maybe it's like when that oh, when what you're owed is fulfilled, then like that's forgiveness. Um, and so that's kind of the, the brothers' assumption. They're like, well, we haven't gotten it. You know, like we haven't, uh, we haven't paid our due to Joseph yet. So like he's, he's there's something bad coming our way. He's gonna he's gonna sell us as slaves. Maybe like maybe that would be justice. Um, so they send a message to Joseph. They said, well, you'll see three more. Before his death, your father left this instruction, which, by the way, we never saw this instruction. Is this true? Is it not true? Is there a rabbinic understanding? This is a lie. Um, but okay, who knows? So the brothers say, this is what dad told us to tell you, Forgive the offense and guilt of your brothers who treated you so harshly. Um, therefore, please forgive the offense of the servants of the God of your father. Um, so that's that's the that's how they ask for forgiveness, not even in their own name, like in like faux the name of their father, like made up in the name of their father. And, and they're not to do that, in my opinion. I'm sure I'm, I'm excited once we read through it to hear what you have to say. I think I think that's kind of clever on their part. Like they know that Joseph's allegiance to their father is so strong, and that since um, and that the first you know the first thing Joseph says to his brothers is, "I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive?" You know, like that. That's really this like driving principle in their relationship to date. So using in the name of their father to ask for forgiveness is very beautiful. And, and by the way, this is also the source we, we've seen this in like secondary sources. But when the Talmud says that you need to ask for forgiveness three times, it actually comes from, from this verse that there seems to be like um, it, this sort of like three-part um, repetition of their, their, their guilt and their apology going on even within this one line. 
And what does Joseph do? Yosef, Joseph, um, Joseph cries as they're speaking to him. Joseph, he's such a crier when it comes to his brothers. And here he is crying again uh, when they ask for forgiveness or when they say our father asked for forgiveness. Um, the other thing that's like fascinating is that, or that, that's like confusing, is it sounds like they sent a messenger, like they tabu El Yosef more, but then here it seems like they're talking to Joseph. So like, how did this actually play out? Very difficult to know like what's really happening here. Um, so then, right, so it seems like maybe Joseph cried just when he was reading this letter, when he heard from the messenger, right, the Dobaram Elav, meaning maybe when, when the messenger came and spoke to him, because then, because then the brothers came themselves, and they flung themselves before him, we're ready to be your slaves, so don't kill us, we'll be your slaves, Joseph says back to them, have no fear, am I a substitute for God, like God does that kind of justice, I don't do that kind of justice, um, you intended to harm me, but but God intended it for the good. So as to bring about what happened now, which is that I've actually sustained an entire country, all of Egypt survived because of Joseph's wisdom, even his brothers survived. Maybe other Canaanites also survived the famine because of Joseph's wisdom. Don't worry, I'll sustain you and your children. Not only am I not taking you as slaves, I'm actually going to take you under my protection. He assured them, he spoke kindly to them, and that's it. Joseph and his father's household remained in Egypt. Uh, and Joseph lived 110 years, and that's the end of the Joseph story, is Joseph's ability to forgive his brothers. So if we have maybe like, we can have like five minutes kind of a discussion of what people make of Joseph's forgiveness, like how would you describe his forgiveness? What's he aiming to do? Is he just saying, yes, I have a right to this anger, but I'm not gonna live it out? Or is it like, I don't actually have a right to this anger because really only God has a right to anger in that way. Like you, there's really a lot of different ways to, to read this where um, if people wanna, I'm gonna put this on people how are you so many of you have your cameras on, this is so fun. Um, yeah, Ron, please start us off. Um, you're muted now. I don't know if I'm answering the question, but when, when Joseph includes the business of providence this is what God wanted. This. How does that take? Does that? How does that connect with the forgiveness? Is that a reason that he forgives, or is that an added piece? Would he not think it was God's providence? Would he still forgive? I don't know. Yeah, and like if it had gone poorly for Joseph in the end, I mean that's the other weird piece of it. Like Joseph, Joseph kind of says, "Oh, like it all turned out for the good in the end, so it's fine." But really. He was a slave, he was in jail. Um, like there was a lot of not good that happened in the meanwhile. And he just says, oh, but like when you look at it from this bigger scheme, um, yeah. And then so we have we have Ozzy in the comments saying, it's not this isn't forgiveness. He just says, I'm not gonna like take it out on you. But maybe he doesn't, yeah, maybe he's not saying, uh, 
I told totally, like, I, oh, I'm going to let go of my anger about maybe it's not forgiveness, says Ozzy. Yeah, Chaya. I think, like, the conversation we're having is not about free will, but he kind of, like, completely, I guess you don't have to read it this way, but he take, you could read it as him just taking away all, like, agency and responsibility from the brother's choices. So he's not forgiving something that they did. He's just kind of saying, like, you didn't have a choice and this wasn't you acting which is kind of like, I'm, I'm thinking like for real life in a certain way, if someone forgave me that way, I might be offended. <laughs> like, <laughs> not because like it was me being mean and I want to own that, but just, it's not really forgiving them personally. It's just separating them from the problem, which I think is in, an interesting way to approach just like sin and behavior in general. I don't know. I think that's a great response to Ron also, right? Which is that actually he's saying like, the reason he brings in God is because he's not, he's not, or and maybe also Ozzy, right? He's not engaging with the brothers. He's not, he, like, if anything, he's angry at God and what he's doing here is actually forgiving God, maybe, but then not actually engaging with the brothers because um, maybe the brothers didn't have agency or maybe he's just more angry at God than he is at the brothers or something. Um, Matthew says, maybe it's more of like a cup condoning right we had used that language before of just like okay we're gonna be in relationship even though this terrible thing happened but we're not gonna move on from it um yeah all those are possibilities Evie are you raising your hand or you're just okay um does anyone else have have thoughts about this text or questions or ideas yeah Lisa comes into my head is that he he needs his brothers I mean without his brothers he's Egyptian I mean, his brothers really are the only thing that make him an Israelite. Um, so he's still very connected with them and there's still a mutuality there. Fascinating. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where I was thinking about in this text, not in, in those exact, in that, in that exact word, which, which I think is very interesting. Like he needs them to maintain his, his like Israelite, Canaanite, whatever identity. Um, which I think is, is fascinating read. Um, but I think the other piece of it, the other piece of what, what I want to say is going on here is, um, is maybe sort of like a, a repairing, a turn towards repairing of relationship um, that, that actually, you know, there, there could be all of this anger, there could be all of this, um, there could be all of this like, tit for tat, like I need to punish, I need to whatever. And he's in a position to exact whatever punishment he wants. And he chooses, um, and he chooses not to because he leans back into the relationship and into actually choosing to heal the relationship, maybe for the reasons why Lisa is suggesting, um, which is um, maybe he has some other motive of like, this is a core link in his identity, um, but maybe also because that's, um, and this is kind of the where we're headed today is that that repairing relationship is this like almost definitional piece of forgiveness. Um, Mona, do you want to say something quick and then we're going to keep going? Sure. Um, I, I think in keeping with the relational focus, um, one of the things that's most painful about the story is that the brothers didn't respond or notice that Joseph was suffering in the pit. There's various, I think, Midrashim about that, and um, they, they really turned away from him, uh, which may have been the cruelest blow of all. And um, here they're turning towards him and they are acknowledging to themselves, I'm not sure they're thinking he's hearing them necessarily, what 
you know, for all the wrong we've done. And Joseph, I think, feels connected to them for the first time. And then he cries. And I think that crying is part of his yearning for connection with the brothers. I think he needs the brothers. I, I agree. He needs them for th their connection to the Jew, the Jewish people. But I think it's more than that. I think he's really the dynamic of him being separate from his brothers is, is throughout the story early on. And this is a reparative moment. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think focusing in on that crying is really, is a really beautiful, um, it's like a really beautiful point in the story. Like it's not that Joseph, right? And that's I think, an argument against the like condoning theory that's been floating here that Joseph is just like, there's no forgiveness here and he's just moving on. Like, I don't know that the Torah tells us about people crying when they're just moving on. Um, so yeah. Um, okay, Clem, take it away. So I, I just wanted to make like a few, a few quick comments. So one, this, I want, whether or not it's happening in, in this case, because I, I think that the this line, um, although you intended me harm, God intended it for good. There, I guess, diff very different ways of, of reading that. But one of the things that like Kaya seemed to be expressing that like, well, it, does this even count as forgiveness? If here would be a way that it seems not to count as forgiveness. If what Joseph is saying is actually like no sort of no harm, no foul, like there was no problem. Um, you know, this, this is all working out for the greater good. So I'm, I'm kind of refusing your acknowledgement that you had wronged me. And whether or not that's what's going on in his saying, although you intended me harm, God intended it for good, I think it does speak to something really central, which is that in a case of successful forgiveness, there's this kind of mutual acknowledgement of wrong being done. It has to come from both, from both sides. Um, and if any, if sort of either one of the sides is not interested in acknowledging a wrong, then you can't have sort of forgiveness in, in its full-fledged form. And I think that that again sort of speaks to this kind of relational element. Um, so there's lot, there are lots of other things that in, in what came up in this conversation that I think we'll actually see come up, come up as we go um, as we go along. So just as I've done in these past um, few sessions, what I'm going to do over the next few minutes is offer a kind of picture, a philosophical picture. Um, that makes sense of, I think, at least certain elements of a story like this one, um, and that we can use to see forgiveness in a, in a particular light. So one of the central elements of forgiveness that I've emphasized over and over again, and that we've sort of, Leah and I have both argued or suggested has come up in, in various passages, is this idea that forgiveness is bipolar. That is, that there are sort of two poles in, in a, a a moment of forgiving. There's the wronged and the wrongdoer. And that forgiveness somehow exists in the space between these two poles. So we saw that in the debt picture, because you know, debt is the kind of thing that I owe to you. And I was suggesting that even if we think about forgiveness as an emotional thing, about like say my anger towards the person who wronged me, that still anger itself is a kind of bipolar moral emotion. It's not just, at least in as much as forgiveness is about letting go anger. It's not just some feeling that you have inside you. It's a feeling towards someone for something. It's a kind of emotion that exists in the space between two people. And the suggestion that we want to explore today is that forgiveness is essentially about transforming the space between two people. That that's its job. 
the purpose of forgiveness, so sort of the thing that makes it forgiveness as opposed to something else, is exactly that it has this kind of ability to transform the normative space between two people, between two poles. So one way into this thought is to recall from our, from our first section, um, this idea that I pulled from, from Judith Thompson about the world being a kind of realm of rights, where what she meant by that was, when we think about our obligations to others or how we should act, they're conditioned by this, this space that we exist in, where all of us are constantly interwoven in a web of rights that we have against and towards one another. And rights is this very sort of legalistic word, but the key idea was that there were all kinds of ways in which um, there were obligations that we owed to one another and that that was sort of central to what it was to live a good life was to recognize those obligations, the, the realm that we inhabited. And I think that we can have an even more expansive understanding of this where the thought isn't just about rights, but in general, our lives are shaped by a kind of very broad normative web that we inhabit with other people. So think about, for instance, what it is to be a friend and not merely someone's colleague. You know, imagine a case where you, know, you, you had a colleague at work or at school or whatever it might be who became a friend. Well, what's the difference? What was, what was in that becoming? Well, it seems like part of what it is to be a friend has to do with the kind of normative relations you stand in. So what is it for Leia like to be my friend or for my to be Leia's friend? Well, here's some of the things that involves, not an exhaustive list, but some of it is that, well, she's the sort of person that I could call if things are going badly. You know, like if I need someone to talk to, she's the sort of person who, you know, if she started sharing personal details about her life, I wouldn't be like, whoa, 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 this is way too much information, right? It's totally appropriate. She's my friend. Or she's the sort of person who, you know, we would each do something to go out of the way for the other, that we'd be, we would make sacrifices. These are the kinds of things that seem to constitute friendship. You know, if we were just colleagues, if we were just sort of work colleagues, or we just had, you know, had, had met at some conference about forgiveness and decided to, to throw this together, that would be, it would be different. There would be different kinds of relations that we would stand in. So here's this, here's the sort of first suggestion. Part of what it is to be a friend is for there to be this kind of special set of considerations that attend to us that are different from others. So too, you might think part of what it is to maybe be like a partner and not just like a roommate, a co-occupant of a house involves this sort of special set of considerations or norms, permissions, facts about what's appropriate or inappropriate, considerations that seem to matter that wouldn't otherwise. And so too, for all other kinds of relationships, you know, between a student and a teacher, between a police officer and a citizen, between two co-citizens. The idea is that in each of these relationships, there seem to be part of what makes them what they are, part of what makes the relationship have the character that it does, is that it involves a certain kind of set of norms or considerations or reasons that are appropriate to inhabitants of that relationship. And you can even sort of see this in, in more fine-grained differences. So consider the difference between, you know, an intimate friendship and a casual one. You know, two people who are friends just because it's fun and they want to hang out, but, you know, they don't go, they don't get to the deep stuff. Well, what's the difference between a relationship that's casual and intimate? It's exactly that perhaps the deep stuff is off limits. Like, yeah, it's kind of, we're not, we're not that kind of friend. It's inappropriate to go there. 
So where do these norms that structure our relationships come from? Well, sometimes they come from explicit commitments. So why is it a norm that governs our relationship, like the one that I have to each of you, that I needed to prepare for this class? Well, that came from an explicit agreement that I made with Leah. Like I said, yes, I'll teach this class. Let's do it together. Why is it that sort of we had obligations to each other with respect to this class to prepare? It's because we made explicit agreements. Sometimes it might be something like a contract. So like, why do I have obligations to my students at, at my university, in part because I signed a contract? Or maybe there's sort of verbal agreements, like saying I do in a marriage. That invokes all kinds of norms that weren't present before. So sometimes I think we build these norms, we enter into these, these structures because of explicit agreements, contracts, promises, assurances. But often, very often, probably more often than not, the norms that structure our relationships come not from explicit agreements, but from something implicit, from just ways that we behave or act. So thinking about sort of the development of a friendship, think about a case where you, know, you had someone who was a mere colleague who became friends. Well, what started that? Maybe it was something like saying, oh, do you wanna get lunch today? And now it's sort of, that's the beginning of, you, you didn't say, do you wanna be friends? Yes, I'll be your friend. And what it involves in being your friend is that we're the sort of people who go out to lunch. You just sort of, you ask and that offer was taken up. Or consider like, how is it that someone, how, how is it that you might become close friends? Well, sometimes you just do something like you're there for the person when they needed it, or you sacrificed for their sake. And having done that, you can start, especially if it's reciprocated, if it happens enough, you can start to then build a relationship in which that is part of what's normal in a relationship. Not because you agreed explicitly, I'll be there for you, I'll sacrifice, but because you did it. And so here's a key thought in this, and this is gonna tie in to forgiveness in a moment. Our relationships, they change, they, they go from colleague to friend, from friend, um, you know, consider like the beginning of a romantic relationship that might very well start from strangers to friends, to romantically involved, to committed. Well, what changes these? Maybe there are explicit commitments along the way, but a lot of the changes, they just come from changes in behavior, changes in the way we do things that signal and enter into different forms of relating to another person. And so here's the key thing that I wanna emphasize at this moment before we go on to this next, this next section. Our relationships change, they're malleable, and they change just by our doing things. It's because you were there for the person that you became friends, you know, and, and similar stories for other kinds of relationships. So with that background in place, there's a picture here of wrongdoing that starts to emerge. Why does it matter when you wrong someone? Suppose, you know, Leah calls because she needs something from me. She needs my help. And I just blow her off. I wrong her in this way. Well, why does that matter? Here are three different ways wrongdoing can matter in the space between me and Leah if I wrong her. One is the wrong just matters in and of itself. Sort of regardless of whatever effects it have, it just matters. But here's an effect. Wrongdoing can normalize further acts of wrongdoing and actually make it no longer wrong. So here's, here's a kind of example of that. Imagine I just keep ignoring Leah. I blow her off. Well, eventually it's not gonna be wrong anymore to blow her off. Why? Because by blowing her off, I broke our friendship. 
I actually changed the norms that constituted our relationship. It's no longer normal for us to be there for one another. I broke that. And having broken it, it's sort of, I have wronged her, but that wrong is sort of in the past. The next time I, I don't respond to her needs, it's not wrong sort of in the future, sort of that mistake has happened. Or here's a, a sort of more benign example. This one probably has happened in my relationship with Leia. I'm always late to things um, and, and she doesn't call me on it. And maybe the first few times I sort of, I wronged her and I owed her an apology. But imagine if after 10 years, she, she just sort of like, it's like, what is, what is wrong with you? You're, you're five minutes late to lunch again. I sort of, where did that come from? Like, that's never been a thing for us. That's never been part of our relationship that like punctuality was so important. So, I mean, here's this, here's this kind of idea that when you do things sort of for good and for, for, for ill, that can change what's normal. You know, you get used to it. It's no longer something that's inappropriate. And moreover, when you wrong another person, another way in which it might change a norm is it introduces new norms. Norms around what we might think of as debt repayment, very crudely speaking, or emotional warrant to call back to these first two pictures. So here's something that changes if I've wronged Leia. It's now within the norms. It's appropriate for her to demand an apology. It's appropriate for her to be angry where she wasn't angry before. It, sorry, where it would have been inappropriate before. You know, if I blow her off, now an, a certain kind of anger is warranted that wasn't present before. And there are other things that might be warranted by wrongdoing. She might suspend her trust in me in all kinds of ways. Again, it depends on the wrong. She might put distance between us or end the friendship. So here's the kind of thought. There are three ways in which wrongdoing matters. There's sort of a wrong in and of itself. There's a wrong's sort of insidious effects in the way that it can normalize something and make okay what was wrong. And then there's this third way in which it changes the norms where it entitles it, it introduces a new kind of uh, set of of rights, you know, calling back to these first two, these first two sessions. It's now appropriate for her to be angry where it wouldn't have been otherwise. She might have a right to apology. She might have a right to end this relationship where if I hadn't wronged her, that would have been out of the blue. So against this background, we can start to see that sort of forgiveness might have a role to play in fixing this stuff. Wrong has all of the, wronging has all of these effects. It changes the shape of the relationship between us. It changes the space between us. And forgiveness can be seen as a tool to heal the space between us, to heal not just something like the sort of the emotion in me, not just our kind of recognition of a debt that's been repaid, but also to heal the ruptures in the norms that govern how we are to relate to one another. And you might think that sort of, well, I'll say more on that in a little bit. So let me, let me pass it back to, um, to Leia to discuss this. Well, actually, before we do that, let me just pause for, for questions on, on this so we don't just sort of go, go, bulldo go bulldozing through. Yeah, Mona. So um, I, I'm really interested in a, um, an area in psychology and philosophy called relational ethics. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and within, within couple relationships, it involves among other things, the fact that how we treat our partner um, affects their identity and sense of self and well-being. Mm -hmm. So if you're, not to pick on you, but if you're chronically late, yeah. Yeah. let's say you're not taking into account the impact on Leia. Yeah. And now I know Leia's mother is here and I know her father also. So I'm, I'm assuming this is all hypothetical, but let's say Leia was raised where she felt like not taken into account by her parents. And you hit a wound. I'm not saying this is the case, but you hit a wound. Yeah. So that now the 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 wound is doubled right and yeah. and you've you, you've not taken into account her vulnerabilities let's say right mm -hmm. so I, I think that that the realm of relational ethics really leads us to go beyond just you know as someone said well that's just Quinn being Quinn right he's just late right um because that's Quinn being Quinn means Quinn's in his own head and he's expected to like get a pass right but he's not thinking about the impact on his partner of, of this mm -hmm. behavior yeah, and and here's what sort of is is one of the key ideas of, that I think is bound up in in this relational ethical picture is that for me not to think about Leia in in that way is to is to fail as a friend. It's sort of here's here's a kind of true state. Here's something. Here's a way to describe it. You're not acting like a friend. You're not being the friend that you claim you are. Why? Because part of what it is to be a friend is to recognize not only some you know, little thing about punctuality perhaps, but also like the deeper way in which that is a part of who she is or it impacts her. Because part of what it is to be a friend is to be the sort of person that takes that as important. And so the, the thought about sort of wrongdoing here that I wanna introduce is if I, what, what I have done in wronging her, whether it's sort of a seemingly small thing that turns out to hook into something big or a big thing directly. Like I just blow her off when she's quite explicit, you know, she's in crisis and I just ignore her is I start to make it the case that I'm not her friend, literally. So there's a kind of, there's a damage here that's been done. We've, we've threatened the, we've threatened her and she's been wronged. There's something about me that's damaged here, but there's also something about sort of our, how we stand vis-a-vis -vis one another, the friendship that's been, that needs healing. There's sort of three things that might need healing here, not just two, um, sort of the space between us. My one day of couples counseling training at Maharat, that's what we learned, that there's two, there's really three people in the room in couples counseling, the partners and the relationship. <laughs> All right, Lisa, go ahead. So, I mean, just going back to Joseph and his brothers, I mean, you know, thinking about the ethical part of it. I mean, so ethically they owed him an apology, which I don't think they quite gave him, <laughs> right? Um, and so, but what he does is he redefines the relationship. So you're putting it in terms of ethics, but also it just, it just sets the definition of what a relationship is. You know, yeah. Aside from the ethics, you know, like now we know what this is. Now we know what we're doing. Yeah, it's sort of. Um, it seems like part of what he does is, you know, in saying something like, "Fear not, I will sustain you and your children." What is he doing there? He's he's sort of defining a relationship. Like we're we're going to be family of a certain form, the kind wherein I I am there for you. I sustain you. And 
that's sort of part of what, why Leah and I were interested in this passage in connection to this idea where suppose that was a case of forgiveness, however flawed the apology might be. The sort of the thing that really brings it together is that he says, well, here's what we're going to be to one another now. Um, you have, you, my brothers have sort of threatened to wreck or you did wreck the space between us. But what I'm doing is sort of building here a new relationship. Um, one that was undermined by their actions um, because what all of what they've done sort of suggested that they're not the sort of people who, they're not family in a kind of rich sense. They weren't there for one another. They didn't sustain one another. I think we should keep going just because yeah, yeah. time is short. Yeah, yeah, um, okay, so we're going to move on to this like amazing, rich Mishnah and Baba Kama. We're in Parakachol now. So we're in the eighth chapter of Baba Kama. And the eighth chapter of Baba Kama is what lays out um, what people, if I harm, now, now we're moving into the world of bodily harm. I do bodily harm to Quinn. Um, what do I owe him? So how is restitution calculated? And the first Mishnah in the chapter leaves out that I owe him Nezek, Tsari, Shabbat, Oshad, right? I own five different kinds of restitution, which are, um, you know, damage for the, like, it's like, if, he, if I sold him on the sleeve market with a nose and then sold him on the sleeve market without a nose, what, uh, what would be the difference in that value? Um, and then um, pain is is tsar. So that's like, Quinn, how much would you pay me for me to break your nose? Um, um, and then Ripui are his medical bills. Shavet is the amount of work he misses. And Boshet is one of the more complicated ones. Boshet is how much um, how much embarrassment did he suffer um, by not having a nose and um, how much and, and like turning that into like a monetary amount that I repay him. But at the end of that chapter that goes into all of these complicated rules about how to uh, pay, how to calculate and pay for all of those different kinds of damages that are, um, that are included in Quinn no longer having a nose because I, I injured him in that way. Um, the end of that chapter ends as follows. Even though I have given Quinn all of these five different kinds of restitution in I am not forgiven. I'm not forgiven, right? So we're not talking about did I repay him? I've repaid him. But re restitution is different than forgiveness. And I am not forgiven until uh, for doing this damage to Quinn until I ask for forgiveness from Quinn. So there's a two-step process. There's the payment of the restitution, and that's insufficient. And so then in addition to all this restitution, which by the way, it's not a straightforward type of restitution, right? It's a restitution that's, that's very holistic. It really involves me like quite intensely looking into the pain that I caused Quinn, the social pain I caused him, the pain, the suffering of his career, what it felt like for him to be in the hospital for all those days. Like the, the very holistic type of restitution that the Mishnah lays out, but in addition to all of that, I have to ask forgiveness. And then the Mishnah goes up, and I'm going to get to these proof texts um, in a second, but um, skip the proof text for now. And then the Mishnah goes on to say, How do we know that, that Quinn, the victim, 
um, shouldn't be cruel by not forgiving me. And then we have another pretext. So I'm supposed to ask for forgiveness and Quinn is actually supposed to forgive me. After I've done this whole restitution process and then I ask for forgiveness, then he's actually supposed to say, yeah, I'm um, And I want to say a few words about the pretext because you might notice that Genesis 20, which is where these pretexts are from, is not a text that we have been discussing in this class. It just, if you read Genesis 20, does not seem like a paradigmatic forgiveness proof text. Genesis 20 is, um, you can open it up if you have it open, in if you have your, your Bible or your Tanakh open in front of you, but basically Abraham and Sarah go to Grar, they do that classic thing where Abraham tells Sarah, pretend to be my sister, Sarah does it, she's taken into the house of Abimelech, um, and Abimelech doesn't sleep with her, and then God comes to Abimelech in a dream and says, whoa, this woman you've taken into your house is married, blah, blah, blah. and then everyone becomes sick, and no one in Abimelech's house is able to conceive, and there's all this whatever, and then God says to Abimelech, and that's our first, um, our first proof text here, well, first of all, yeah, God says to Abimelech, if you want all the stuff that's going wrong in your house to heal, you have to go to Abraham, and you have to return his wife to him, and you have to, and he's, and then he'll pray for you, and then he'll, um, and then he'll get better. So um, we have, right, um, right, return, return this man's wife, because he is a prophet, and he'll pray for you and you'll live. Um, and if you don't do that, then you're going to die. So then Abimelech gets up, but instead of actually like apologizing exactly to Abraham, kind of yells at Abraham. He's like, why did you possibly do this to me? You lied to me. It's so terrible. And Abraham's like, well, I thought you would kill me because of my wife. Um, and anyways, and then eventually Abraham does pray for Abimelech and Abimelech and his whole household do heal. But it just doesn't seem like a real apology. It doesn't necessarily, there's no language of forgiveness going on here. And the Mishnah's reading of forgiveness into this chapter is like truly fascinating and we can spend really a lot of time on it. But I, I think for me, like one of the, there's two things that I wanted to bring out from this Mishnah. And then I actually think we're gonna have to keep going, unfortunately, um, even though we like plan a lot of discussion about this, um, is that um, the two things I wanted to bring out was one, that like rest in, in this chapter that is like, if I said to someone who knows like the Mishnah or the Talmud well, like, where do we talk about restitution? They would be like, this chapter, but the chapter about restitution ends with forgiveness because restitution, because forgiveness is the final step of restitution. It's not, and restitution alone is insufficient. That's the end of the chapter about restitution, um, is that forgiveness is not, is a separate step and it's insufficient without, um, without requesting forgiveness and receiving it, but that you're supposed to get forgiveness. Um, and then the second piece is that um, I think the pretext is really fascinating. And my read of it, though you're obviously always entitled to your own, is that there's something very beautiful about Abraham praying for Abimelech. So it's not just, okay, I've forgiven you, um, but we didn't have a relationship before, so what kind of relationship are we going to have now? Um, it's, I forgive you, and I care about your household now. Like, I've forgiven you, and now we have a completely different relationship than we did at the start. And now we have a relationship where I'm actually, where, like, actually, I, I care about you, and actually, I'm going to pray for you, and that our relationship is is not only, like, 
rebuilt to what it was, but actually completely reconstituted in a much more um, intimate and loving way than it ever was before. And then that's really the relational power and possibility of forgiveness as laid out um, in this super evocative mission that we don't have sufficient time to discuss. Sorry, the lack of time is probably entirely my fault. So, um, so here's in, in section four, I, I just want to sort of briefly talk about a little more concretely how we can think of forgiveness as this sort of tool for, for relationship changing. So here's one way to, to think of it. When you wrong someone sort of intentionally or not, you kind of pose a question, who are we? So if I blow Leia off, there's a way in which that sort of that blowing her off is asking like, are we still friends? And her forgiving me is like, is a kind of answer to that question. Like, yes, I'm affirming that these norms that were violated, they can still be the norms that tell us who we are to one another. And I'm gonna sort of skip some of the, um, what I think of as more the technical details of this, but that's, I think the, the key thought here is that part of what we do when we wrong someone is we push against the very norms that shape who we are to the other person. And to forgive is to, is to undo the damage that is threatened by the wrongdoing. It's to kind of, it's, it's to together say, hey, you know, this isn't gonna be normal. That wrong is not normal. It's not who we are to one another. What, who we are is still this old thing. It's friends. It's not sort of newly formed strangers and, or not strangers, but sort of ex-friends. Ex and likewise, it's not to forgive is to say we are not wrongdoer and victim, sort of perpetrator and victim, because that's its own kind of relationship. If I, if I wrong Leia, it could be that for a time, our relationship is in part characterized by her being a victim of my hurting her and my being a wrongdoer. What would characterize that relationship? Well, it's to sort of be in a position to demand apology that I need to do certain, to forgive is to say, well, that piece of it, you know, we can put that behind us. It having been sort of, it's having been acknowledged or having healed, we are no longer sort of perpetrator and victim. We're also not ex-friends, we are friends. So that's kind of the core, the core thought of, of what forgiveness on this picture on it looks like. And in this way, I think like forgiveness is kind of in the same family of things. This might sound a little strange, but it's in the same family of phenomena as things like promising or consenting. What do promise and what do promising and consenting do? They're things that sort of change the shape of the norms between us. Well, for her to forgive is to change the shape of the norms between us. It's to sort of heal in this case, to restore. So in this sort of picture, why forgive? Well, here's one really important reason because relationships matter a ton. I mean, that's sort of, that's sort of obvious. Obviously our relationships matter, friendship matters, partnership matters, but it matters in a way that's sort of not just sort of the obvious way, if we think about, forget sort of ethics narrowly construed or, or questions about morality, just think about the kind of day-to-day -day decisions we make. Well, many of the considerations 
that bear on how we should act stem from our relationships. Like, why did I spend time, you know, reading this book today? Because, you know, I'm, I'm a teacher and I'm, it's important for my students that I prepare the, why did I spend time, you know, on the phone with my partner earlier? Because she's in job interviews and she's stressed and, you know, that was an important consideration. Most of what we do in some way is, reflect, is, is shaped by the relationships we stand in. But the thing is that we screw up all the time. We make mistakes and our relationships, they're malleable. They're not necessarily fragile, but they need work. They sort of, they need tending to, because when we screw up or when people screw up with us, that sort of has an impact. It threatens the integrity of the relationship. The relationships that structure our whole lives, that structure who we are to one another, that structure our, our own identities. And so on this kind of picture, the answer to the question why forgive is because among the central tasks we have in a life is to build and maintain relationships with others. And kind of almost inevitably, we screw it up. And so we have to do something about the screw-ups. We have to heal. And in a more local question, when we ask like, why forgive in a particular case? I think the answer to the question, and sometimes the answer is, well, maybe you shouldn't forgive. The question, should you forgive, is a question of, well, what kind of relationship should I be in with this person who has wronged me? So we, we talked in previous sessions, you know, are there unforgivable wrongs? Well, in this sort of picture, that's to say, well, sometimes when people do things, the right relationship to have is not one of like trying to restore what you were before. It's to maintain a relationship of wronged to wrongdoer, to maintain the standing, to call them out, to demand reparation. It's never to erase that kind of debt. And maybe, and I think this, this ties into some things that, um, you know, Lisa was saying, a while back, like why, what are some of the reasons that Joseph might have to forgive? Well, it's because maybe part of what matters to him sort of in not being Egyptian <laughs> um, is to have a certain kind of relationship to his brothers, to his family, that, that, that that's part of who he is. And on this kind of picture, that's a really good reason to forgive. It's to, it's because part of who I am is to be in a certain kind of relationship with others. And maybe another good re reason to forgive is because he's interested in having a family you know, and, and in, in relating to brothers in a way that he hadn't before um, or hadn't for, for a while. So the thought on this kind of picture is, you know, reason to forgive can come in all kinds of different varieties. They come in as many varieties that there are reasons to relate to other people. Um, maybe it's because, yeah, yeah so I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. And the thought is, you know, once you've identified and it doesn't have to sort of come in some hyper-intellectualized order. But once one has identified that, you know, a relationship is of a certain form that you want to have, like, I still want to be friends with Leia. I still want to be brothers. Then forgiveness presents itself as a kind of tool that is appropriate in as much as it's appropriate to restore or to get back to some kind of relationship um, that one had before. So I'm going to pass it back to Leia to now look back to a previous passage, one that we had, we had talked about last time, but we want to add a kind of new dimension to this week. Yeah, so we've been going back to Exodus 32. It's been on every source sheet. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that it is like the backbone of the Slichot liturgy and the Yom Kippur liturgy, which is Slichot liturgy. And um, 
And I want to expand kind of the lens. I want to grow out. We, so this, this part from Exodus 32, we looked at a number of times where God says to Moses, okay, you know, the, the golden, um, the eagle of the ha, the golden calf happened. And now I am going to, um, now I'm going to destroy this whole people. And like Moses, I'll just make a new people out of you. Like, don't worry. And Moses says, like, absolutely not. Um, and then says, you know, first of all, that's going to be really embarrassing for you, God. But second of all, um, remember the relationship that you've had with, with this people, with their ancestors um, and the promise that you made to them. And you promised that you would make their offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven. Um, and you promised that you would bring them into the land and like you have, you're God, so you have to keep your promises. And then, and God renounces the punishment that he had planned to bring upon his people. And so when we talk about renouncing, um, when, when we talked previously about renouncing anger as part of um, forgiveness, that's maybe like step one in this process, but truly the story doesn't end here because then actually what happens and I have just brought you Exodus 34 but I'll just say what happens uh, tremendous things happen between Exodus 32 and Exodus 34 um where God says okay but I'm actually going to distance myself because if I stick around I'm going to be too angry and I'm going to destroy everyone and so um God says I'm going to send I'll send a messenger instead to, to lead the people through the desert and Moses says no you left not God, you have to walk amongst us. And God and Moses have the most, um, just like the most beautiful, intense moment between the two of them. Moses uh, and the cleft of the rock, God passes before Moses, um, and the revelation of the 13 attributes of divine mercy, right? Which again is each part of the Yom Kippur liturgy, Hashem, Hashem, Karahum, that. But then, after those moments of intense kind of intimacy between Moses and God, it gets like brought it out back again to the whole people. God commits to walking amongst the people again and being um, and being kind of the, the guide through the desert and into the land that, that God had committed to from the beginning and promised, um, at least in Moses' understanding, had promised to our forefathers. But then what happens, right? Because this whole thing began, Moses smashed the, smashed the tablets, right? When he hears. And the smashing of the tablets is the uh, breaking of a relationship in a very physical form, right? These tablets, right? What are they called? The the tablets of the covenant. And when those tablets are smashed, what happens to the covenant? The covenant is smashed with them, right? And so then what happens again on Exodus 34? Carve two tablets out of stone, like the first one. But we know they're only like the first ones because the first ones were not carved by Moses. The first ones were carved by God. This one, this is a new relationship. This is a relationship that has a little bit more human involvement in it, a little bit more Moses do it, like playing his part a little bit more. Moses has to shut the, the two new tablets up the mountain. And then what happens once we have the two tablets? Then, I'll inscribe upon the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you, Moses, had shattered. So that we have this reconstituting of the relationship 
um, slightly different terms, maybe a new relationship, the words are the same, but the whole way the words come into being on the tablets is completely different. Um, and there's really a new relationship built here. And the Gemara and Tani says that the day that the second tablet, the day of the second tablets were given, that day is Yom Kippur, says the, says the Talmud and Tani. So the day that this new commitment to a second new relationship built on forgiveness happens, that's the type of forgiveness that Yom Kippur is commemorating. And the Gemara Tani says that is the day of Sikha and Mechila. That is how we know that Yom Kippur is the day of Sikha and Mechila, which are these two words that we have not had the chance to get into, but both mean something on the order of forgiveness. Um, and that's that's really what the day of Yom Kippur is all about, is this new constituted and the possibility of newly reconstituting those relationships through forgiveness. So should we, I think maybe we'll skip right to our, our sort of concluding thoughts. Is that good with you? Yeah. So it, my in, in closing, one thing that I want to just suggest is that like in, in philosophy, there, we're very interested and in sort of all participants in a debate typically agree that there can be at most one true view, only one theory of a given phenomenon. And so I think, you know, it in as much as sort of from a kind of philosophical point of view, there's a real question, and I think an important question about which of these is correct, which if any of them are sort of can serve as the true theory of a really deep and important phenomenon in our lives. But when we step sort of away from the seminar room, when we see a kind of like value in, in philosophy outside of, outside of doing, doing the activity and just in, in its ability to shed light on our life um, and on um, this really important phenomenon in our life, I think that there's something that each of these three views, whichever one sort of turns out to be um, in the end correct, that each of them is getting at something deep, important and profound that is worth recognizing. So in the first account, this idea of, of forgiveness as a kind of waiving of a debt, we find an idea that wrongdoing changes the kind of standing that we have with one another. And that when we wrong another, we owe something to them. We owe it to make, to, we, you know, we owe another person to make it right. And that, that can take different forms. It might be apology, it might be restitution, it might come in a form of ritual, it might not, but that there's something that we owe when we do wrong. And likewise, when we are wronged, that there's something important about recognizing when someone has paid their due, that there is such a thing as sort of, you know, even if it's not all of what there is to apologizing or all of what's involved in the phenomenology of forgiveness, there is this core essential truth, which is it can be that someone, at least for some wrongs, is able to pay their moral debt. In the second sort of picture, this idea of forgiveness as letting go of anger, I want to suggest that we can find a kind of appreciation for emotions, emotions like moral anger or emo um, emotions of resentment, um, an appreciation that they are central and that they should be understood not as just some kind of inner psychic force, although they might also be that, but as something that binds us together. It's uh, Our emotions are things that sort of they're about others and they have within them sort of embedded and deeply committed moral judgments. 
and that we shouldn't see a kind of contrast between you know reasoning or ethics or morality on the one hand um, and emotion on the other, but that emotions are kind of part and parcel of what we're doing when we think about ethics, when we try to live an ethical life. And in the last view, this idea of forgiveness as reshaping a relationship, I want to suggest that like one of the key ideas here is that our relationships are of central importance in sort of ways obvious and less so. And forgiveness is a kind of necessary tool in a life exactly because we're really good at breaking them. Um, sort of, we're too good at it. And because it seems like a, a deep part of the human condition that these things that structure our lives, that structure who we are and who we are to one another are malleable, that we, we hold them in our hands. And because we hold them in our hands, um, we need a tool to fix what our hands occasionally break. Uh, and there's something very, uh, very Jewish about Quinn kind of weaving the normal uh, philosophical approach of one of these things should be right, but really all three are, uh, as we, you know, ilu ilu like these and those are words of the living God, uh, and we can, in Judaism, we're very good at, at holding uh, holding multiple uh, different approaches all at once in our heads. Um, and I think so too here. Um, but what I do think is certainly true is that uh, Yom Kippur is a day where God is like ready and available to reconstitute um, our relationship with Him, with God, God's relationship with us, um, and hopefully that that inspires us, God's willingness, um, God who is omniscient and omnipresent. Uh, has the capability to forgive, and hopefully so too do we. Um, and so in all the different ways that forgiveness can manifest and the different work that each of those manifestations requires of us to not be, in the language of the Mishnah, to not be, um, to not be cruel by, by withholding forgiveness in the relationships in our lives that need it. Hopefully, hopefully God's availability as forgiver on this day can, uh, can inspire us to, um, can inspire us to do the same. So thank you everyone so much for coming and for learning with us. Thank you, Quinn, for stepping out of your comfort zone and into the Torah world. Um, and I'm so, so grateful that you were willing to share your wisdom and incredible teaching and incredible um, thoughtfulness on this subject with um, all of our learners here at Drisha. Um, and um, we're just wishing you all uh, a Gemar Chatima Tuva to be signed and sealed in the book of health and life and and uh, and all things good for the year to come. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Thank you both. Thank you all so much. This was really very special. So thank you. Thank you, uh, Professor uh, White and Robin Sarna, for this wonderful series. And also thank you everyone who joined us uh, today on Zoom, on Drisha Live and on Facebook. We will be live again tomorrow, Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. with the final class uh, in a session on forgiveness and atonement in Jewish tradition, uh, philological and philosophical perspectives with Rabbi Zukir. In addition, you can find out more information as well as uh, other class offerings um, on our website at www.drisha.org slash classes. And you can watch uh, recordings and live classes at www.drisha.org slash live. We hope to see everyone again in one of our upcoming classes here at Drisha. Have a good night. <laughs> Thanks, Evie.